you know, a lot of people had ended up dead who tried to infiltrate the IRA. Like, for example, there was um, an SAS captain called Robert Nyrak. They're still looking for his body. There's a commission that looks for bodies of people who are missing from the Troubles. But Nyrak wasn't from their world. And his crucial mistake is that he pretended to be. Welcome back to The Live Drop. My guest is journalist and author Sean O'Driscoll. Sean's a respected authority on the Troubles, the Northern Ireland conflict from the 1960s to the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. His book, The Accidental Spy, is about an unlikely IRA infiltrator, American trucking manager David Rupert. After a review of the effects that Brexit could have on Ireland, we talk about David Rupert's story and how he was so successful at securing convictions of several key IRA members. Sean explains the evolution of the IRA and the significance of David Rupert's undercover operation and testimony. And lastly, we discuss the forces that continue to stir division in Ireland, Russia, in the hopes of an eventual reunified Ireland. Begin transmission now. Great work you do. It's really, really important. You know, there's huge, I feel like it's a huge tranche of history that hasn't been recorded. And it's, it's you know, it's amazing that, that you're able to go back over and tell all these stories. It's really, really important. Thank you. I, I'm just so fascinated by the whole cold war experience you know it's a it's a huge area of interest for a lot of people you know you look at that like what do you call it deutschland 85 and, and those kind of series where people are starting to re-examine it again it it defined all our lives and then people kind of didn't want to know about it and now they really want to know about it again i feel because it can be examined with fresh eyes now yeah you can look back on it and make some make some sense out of it do, do you feel like that also happens in uh, Ireland with the with with the troubles. Do you think it's taken a little bit of time for people to come to terms with what's happened and what's going on? Oh, absolutely. I I, I think you know there was the initial excitement about the peace process and the, the the Good Friday Agreement as it's known in 1998, and then particularly in the South and in Britain, people just didn't want to know. They were so sick to death of the whole thing, and then there was just this upsurge in the last few years, a really big interest. People are starting to re-examine it now, particularly as the IRA's political wing is such a huge party in uh, in Ireland. You know, at the time they were presented as simply just nihilists uh, who were out to destroy society. But then when you see them in politics, you kind of say, people kind of started to re- re-examine the whole thing and look at it from different perspectives, I think. Do you find that they are starting to align with other, uh, far, you know, far-right movements or, or extremist movements or like a nationalist movement in the rest of Europe and the United States? Oh, yeah, there's big separatist movements going on all over Europe now at the moment. You know, um, Brexit has thrown a lot of things into turmoil. So let's say the IRA's political wing, Sinn Féin, are trying to link up with Catalan separatists, um, Scottish separatists. Even in Wales, there in in Cardiff, there was a big uh, protest looking for independence recently. Um, like there's a lot going on in Europe at the moment, a lot of different separatist movements, and they're very much part of that. So by separatist movements in Ireland, you mean reunification? Or yeah, they would different? see that they would, you know, they, they, they want uh, Northern Ireland to pull out of the United Kingdom and form a union with, with the South. And Scottish nationalists want to pull away. They had a referendum, they were defeated, but that was before Brexit. Now they're pushing for a second referendum to become an independent country. Um, Welsh nationalists, to a lesser extent, are pushing for independence. Mm-hmm. You know, Catalonia is all but independent at this point from Spain. I mean, they're, they're really trying to be as autonomous as possible. 
Um, and I think probably other separatist movements will, will crop up in Europe. One of the things about the, the Good Friday Agreement was it said, well, it will re- you can revisit later if there is a majority of people in Northern Ireland who want to reunify or if there's a, and there's a majority of people in Greater Ireland who want to reunify. How do you – it seemed like that seemed hopeful. People thought, oh, great. And when everybody wants to leave, everybody wants to stay, that's what we'll do. But do you think that's still relevant? Oh, it's entirely relevant. It's becoming more and more relevant all the time because of because of Brexit. Um, there's a big push in Northern Ireland for a referendum on whether it should stay in the United Kingdom or not, and that that's that's coming louder and louder all the time. I guess the big fear is that suppose it did pass, suppose the majority in Northern Ireland wants to leave the United Kingdom and join with the South, the Protestant population, the Protestant British population of Northern Ireland will likely, some elements of that will kick up in a massive way and there could be violence again. And there could even be a civil war, you know. And so some journalists really uh, believe that this will all end in violence, which would be a terrible shame because right now there's peace. You know, you can drive south to north without even knowing there's a border there. Brexit is going to put that all under pressure. There's probably going to be a visible border. You know, and, and it's possible that things could escalate from there. It's just... It's just a matter of whether there will be a referendum and what the outcome would be. Right now, there's essentially a two-state solution. If the UK leaves the European Union, right? Mm-hmm. Ireland is Ireland remains in the European Union. Is that correct? Yes, the island of Ireland is divided between the Republic of Ireland in the south and Northern Ireland, which is still part of the United Kingdom. So, if the United Kingdom leaves the European Union, then the southern part of Ireland will still be in the European Union and the northern part will be out of the European Union, which causes tremendous trouble in terms of moving goods north and south. Um, just so many complications, so many, I mean, with, with the health system, the electricity system, it's all integrated over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. So it's going to have to be pulled apart because the overarching laws that define all, all our lives, like the most minuscule things you could possibly imagine in your life are defined by European Union law. So that's all going to have to be divided. But that gets really complicated when you've got giant electrical cables underneath the ground that are defined by European Union law, you know. So then some parts of it will and some parts won't. I mean, it's right. it's just it's 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 just mind blowing how complicated this is going to be. Yeah, I and mean, what's to stop companies from just opening up shop in Ireland to take advantage of European yeah. Union regulations? Well, that's uh, that's where things get complicated north south because. The Northern Ireland leader, Arlene Foster, has accused the Republic of Ireland, the South, of secretly meeting with companies and telling them, you know, we'll give you this, we'll give you that if you, if you come South to escape Brexit. And they call them Brexit refugees, you know, people who are applying for Irish passports to escape the whole thing. Uh, so it can, it can add to a bit of tension North-South. I, I just can't comprehend the Brexit thing. It just doesn't seem like a great idea. But then again, you guys probably look at us and think, well, you, what's, what's going on there as well? Well, for Americans, I would say it would be like, imagine if Texas or New York or somewhere really big in the United States decided that it was going to leave. So there's the emotional wound of them leaving and you're thinking, why, you know, what have we done? But there's also, imagine all the federal law that then has to be untangled. Um, so legally, it gets it gets complicated. I remember I pretended I was running away from home when I was five and I packed a suitcase and stood on the porch. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really have much of a plan, you know. My idea was just to scare my parents a little bit, you know, and maybe change things up a little bit. 
Mm. Uh, There's an element of that. There's a very strong element of that. A lot of those who were advocating to leave didn't actually mean it. I spoke to um, a British Protestant politician in Northern Ireland the day after Brexit, and he was in total shock. He was an advocate to leave, but he never thought it was going to be passed. He just thought he was being a a good nationalist, good British nationalist by by calling for it. But he, he thought mommy and daddy would convince him to stay. Speaking with Sean O'Driscoll, author of The Accidental Spy. Where are you from originally? Uh, I'm from the the west of Ireland. And uh, I lived in Belfast in Dublin and New York. So I kind of felt that gave me a good basis to understand uh, Irish nationalism and and the Irish-American scene as well. When were you in Belfast? Uh, The early 2000s. Things were still a bit rough. I think they've quietened down since. There was, you know, flare-ups in the summer during marching season and and things like that. Was, there was plenty to report on. Yeah, my only experience with that was I was doing a television show in London and we we're shooting at the Old Vic and we we're getting all ready for this one shot and then everyone just quietly put down everything they were doing and just walked toward the exits. <laughs> wow. I thought, what the hell is going on? And everyone just walked out and walked about like two blocks away. And it was, wow. uh, and by the time we got there, I said, what's going on? They said, oh, um, there's been a bomb scare. And it was, it wasn't like people in London were looking around at each other. This was 2004 asking what was going on. Everyone just sort of knew and they took it seriously. And that's when I realized, wow, this, this place has been in, it's in some kind of a war. I've noticed that. All right. In, in Northern Ireland, you really notice it. that There's so many bomb scares. Everyone knows exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. Sometimes as a reporter, we, we kind of welcome the bomb scares because there, there was a pub that made great toasted sandwiches across the road from the newspaper and, the IRA, you know, they, they didn't like our newspapers, so they would just put in hoax bomb scares every so often. So we'd just go across and have a sandwich and wait and have a few hours out of work and go back again. So have a cigarette. Fine. Yeah, I thought it was just I thought it was just social time. Everyone just yeah, walks, right. walks a couple blocks away and chats with you. I thought it was just kind of like tea at four, you know, bomb <laughs> scare at one. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Back. yeah, what drew you to David Rupert in this story? I'll tell you how I found out about it. I was sitting at home about two weeks ago, and I'm in Augensburg, New York, which is about 20 minutes away from Madrid. And my mother, she still reads the North Country Now, this circular, this newspaper that comes in. And she literally cut the clipping out about this, a book about this guy from, from wow. Madrid. And just thought, well, this is, I mean, it could have been 1961 where she handed me a clipping <laughs> from a newspaper. And I thought, oh, Oh I'm doing like a spy podcast, Twitter and all this stuff. And I'm holding on to a newspaper clipping. So I thought I've really got to reach out to you. So anyway, I'm glad, I'm glad we're talking. But what, yeah. what, uh, how did you get into this? Uh, I suppose that was always my area. Anyway, I was always interested in, in the troubles in Northern Ireland and the IRA and the whole situation. And David seemed to come out of nowhere. And it was such a fascinating story. It was just a, the narrative of the story was unbelievable. Here was a guy who... He had no connections to Ireland. He wasn't wasn't Irish. He wasn't a Catholic. Meets a, meets a woman in a bar. She turns out to be very high in the Democratic Party in Florida and also very pro-IRA and then takes him over to Ireland into her world. And bit by bit, he, he goes deeper and deeper into the IRA. They break up and the Irish police are photographing him and then the FBI show up at his trucking company and you know make him an offer to become a spy and then he becomes a spy for the fbi and then he becomes a spy for for mi5 which is the the, the secret service of, of britain and i i just thought it was such a, a perfect every man story i mean here was a trucker not what not the background you wouldn't want to expect for a super spy and just bit by bit falls into this world he knows nothing about and has to learn very very quickly and i felt 
he represented all of us. He could be anybody and suddenly finds himself in the spying world. And, and it's kind of like the ultimate suburban husband bored with his job who suddenly becomes an international spy kind of that you'd read about in movies and, you know, you see in a movie and, and you, you think that would never happen. But, but with him, it did. And I just thought I, I would give anything to be able to tell this guy's story. Yeah, it's really compelling. Some scenes really jump out at me, but he is he's he definitely denies the call if you're looking at the hero's journey, right? He doesn't really <laughs> want to do this right off the bat. He's not somebody kind of looking to be a spy or he's not James Bond. And that way he's, I would have loved to have seen that scene where the FBI first approached him at his trucking company. I think he was in Chicago at the time. Yeah, he was in Chicago. He was- well, there was so much stuff going on in Chicago, right? Where he thought that the FBI was, <laughs> was there for He was actually reason. relieved. He was really <laughs> relieved that this was about Ireland because, you know, we, we touched on in the book. I mean, it was just so much stuff going on in trucking. I mean, just, just outside the truck outside the truck kind of village where they were there was prostitution going on obviously there there was interstate drug dealing there was you know even the trucking company itself the the company that was that was running the the big trucking depot they were scratching serial numbers of forklifts to use you know stolen forklifts and all kinds of things you know that one might expect in uh, interstate commerce and uh Mm -hmm. so when the fbi shows up at his office he just froze and he thought you know well i've got nothing to do with this or that and and then they come out with these photographs showing him in Ireland. And here you are speaking to this person. Here you are speaking to that person. What, what do you know about them? And, you know, you're in trouble. And it was an agent called Ed Buckley. who was, was kind of a reputation for being the bulldog of the Chicago office. So a lot of them would have a, a lot more finesse, but not Buckley. He was the kind of guy who would like, you know, the tough guy in the movie who would just kind of come into your office demanding answers and like throw down some photographs. And, and uh, Played but, by Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I know Buckley and... and David Rupert didn't exactly hit it off, but it's an enormous success story for Ed Buckley. If he didn't have the guts to just like go into that Chicago trucking company, none of this would have happened. A lot of FBI agents wouldn't do that. And uh, the fact that he was willing to go in there himself, I I just think is kind of testament that you need people like him sometimes who are just going to get through all the red tape and go in there and just make something happen. And and he did. And, uh, you know, he should be congratulated for that, really. Yeah, one of the things about the book that was really cool is these pretty memorable characters. I mean, you could just kind of go through a list of oh, what happened to this person when you can almost see the, <laughs> in the at the end in the epilogue, just all all the different faces rolling by, like so and so did this and so and so did that. Yeah, now that there's been a bit of time, you can kind of say Mickey McEvitt, the leader of the Real IRA, got out of prison in 2016, and and so on. You you know you, you get a a better feel now for what happened to everybody who's been in the book. I think. Yeah, oh, McEvitt is out of out of jail. Yeah, that's the leader of Real IRA that, that David mm-hmm. Rupert testified about. Um, he got out Easter Sunday, 2016. It was actually the 100th anniversary of the Easter Rising, uh, the Irish Rebellion, which is enormously important for the IRA. So he got out that day and uh, he went home and then I turned up at his house looking for an interview. Oh, you went to his house? Yeah, I went to his house, yeah. Cheeky. Yeah, you know, it was kind of like one of those situations where you ring the doorbell and then you stand like five feet back. And, but uh, his daughter answered the door and she said, no, there's no way he's going to do an interview. And I said, you know, is there, is there any prospect that he might do at a later date? And she said, no way. And then there was just this pause, so I just shrugged my shoulders and I said, well, I tried. And she said, yeah, you tried. And let me tell you something. You're a brave man. And I kind of... You know, I like that she just uh, left it at that and uh, I wished her well and, you know, then that was that. <laughs> yeah, you are a brave man. Well, it would have been great to get his perspective. You know, I, I would like to have known, I mean, I, I got close to him, closer than he probably knows. 
in terms of people within the real IRA who were active at that time, it would have been very good to get his perspective because everybody I spoke to on the IRA side, they all had their story about, oh, I suspected David Rupert and no one would listen to me. And, you know, everybody said that. But if they truly suspected him, he would be long dead by now. Um, right. And I would like to have spoken to McKevitt because I, I don't think he ever suspected David Rupert. And it would have been great if he had been man enough to admit that and just say, look, I got, I got, I got really taken in by this guy and, and really give me that perspective. So McKevitt was someone who, I guess he started out in the provisional IRA. He was a, he was a bomb maker or a um, yeah. arms trader or something like that. So he wasn't really in as he was more, was, would you say that he was more of a technical position in the IRA than, than a leadership? Uh, he loved the technical side, but he was in leadership. He was very, what they would call hands-on in the IRA. He was in leadership position, but he loved to see the weapons. You know, he loved to set up the deals he, that's why they made him a quartermaster general. So he, he was basically in charge of all these bunkers that the IRA held in dozens of farms all over Ireland, typically under a hay shed or under a grass shed or under a cow shed. You, you know, you might, you might find all sorts of massive weapons imported from America and later from, from Libya. Colonel Gaddafi of Libya gave them over 100 tons of, of, of weapons and, and millions of dollars. And he, he was in charge, once they knew that Libya was going ahead, then he was in charge of building or overseeing the building of these underground bunkers that would store all these weapons. More than anybody I've ever seen in the IRA, he truly loved the business of weapons. He, loved, he just loved to, be, to see them, to, to get a feel for them, to know the different types of weapons. And mm-hmm. in fact, before he was busted, he had planned to come in through Mexico into America to, to look at weapons here that Rupert had been inspecting for him but he was arrested before that could happen. I'm trying to trying to see, think of reasons why McKevitt trusted David Rupert, you know, and why he was so effective at doing what he was doing. I mean, they might've bonded on, you know, supply chain. Uh, Maureen, David's wife said that she was struck by how similar they were personality wise. Mm-hmm. I think they were both, they're both kind of blue collar guys who were very smart and were in leadership positions. They're both from a border area. So they were used to smuggling. They were used to that everything that goes on in a border area. McKevitt had also been a trucker. He, he, he was a trucker for a guy called Slap Murphy, who was the chief of staff at the IRA. And he was used to the trucking world too. So they had a lot to talk about. David was a very outgoing personality. He could talk about anything with any, anybody. You know, a lot of people had ended up dead who tried to infiltrate the IRA. Like, for example, there was um, an SAS captain called Robert Nyrak. They're still looking for his body. There's a commission that looks for bodies of people who are missing from the troubles. But Nyrak wasn't from their world. And his crucial mistake is that he pretended to be. He well, you know, went to bars in South Armagh, which is a, an IRA area, and got up there and started singing rebel, rebel ballads. Uh, but they could detect from his accent that it wasn't a local accent. I think where David was successful, he never pretended to be Irish. He never pretended to be a Catholic. He never pretended to know about the situation. He just told them the truth, you know. Uh, oh, yeah, you know, I have a girlfriend who's, who's in the, the, the Republican cause, the Irish Republican cause in America. Please tell me about your world. And they were only too delighted to show him. Mm-hmm. You know, as he said himself, 95% of what he, he ever told them was true. So there was nothing that they could catch him on. It was his real name, his real background. And I, th- I think that had a lot to do with his success because whatever they checked out about him always turned out to be true. Yeah, you can kind of sense it sometimes when people are telling you the truth. I mean, he could constantly reinforce that trust by telling him something that was true. 
Also, you know, the FBI gave him the money to, to take out the lease in a bar in Ireland along the border. There was a, a trailer park or a caravan park, as we would call it, attached to the bar as well. So a lot of IRA people would come down there for their summer holidays and they would come into the bar, which was right beside uh, Bondoran, which is a very popular seaside town where a lot of IRA people go as well. So they were coming in and out of the bar the whole time. You know, David's got full of stories. Like This is a guy who's been married four times, you know, which was a big novelty in Ireland. Divorce had only just been legalized. He's six foot seven. He's 300 pounds. He's got incredible stories from, from the trucking world, from America. Uh, he added a bit of glamour to to their world and they were fascinated by him guys it's hard to believe somebody from madrid added glamour when you describe when you, <laughs> when you described him in your first page first page of the book i thought oh god i know that guy how you doing right how you doing hey. yeah yeah and how are you we're pretty near done by now aren't we yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The, you really picked up some of the dialect from up here. You see, they, they were, they loved that. I mean, there was people who were, who were drinking in his bar like all day. Yeah. And they were just like, he would tell them like stories about trucking to New York, you know, bringing aluminum over to Detroit, to the truck, to the, to the car companies there. And, you know, all the different adventures along the way. And there was one woman in a bar and she would imitate his accent. And, you know, she would say, hi, I'm David. <laughs> and they'd all start laughing, you know. And, yeah. and so he was like this colorful character. And when you're a colorful character, you're, you're often the last person you suspect is a spy because he's like the funny guy from the bar. And they're, they're coming to him. He's not coming to them. You know, he's not trying to weasel his way into meetings they're just sitting in the bar and they're like he's he's like the big yank in fact the, the original name of the book that i wanted was the big yank because that's what everyone called him i i think as a spy that's it's really good because people are coming to you you're not coming to them yeah absolutely except i think with with call murphy he seems sort of aggressive like in trying to get to know colin murphy he's trying to was he trying to get him to work again with the real ira there was there's essentially there was a peace agreement in 1998 which supposedly brought an end to the provisional IRA, which was the main group. But there was, there was two other groups then. There was a breakaway group called the Real IRA, and there was an existing group called Continuity IRA. And David was poised between those two groups who wanted to keep the fighting going. And there was a lot of jealousy between the two groups because David, every time David came from America, he he had an envelope with ten thousand dollars in it. Plus, he had the contacts for getting weapons in America. And he he had technical know-how for a lot of stuff from setting up the internet or bringing in bomb parts from America. And they both really wanted him. And Colin Murphy was continuity IRA. And then Mickey McEvitt and his crowd were real IRA. So there was, David's challenge was to jump from continuity IRA over to the real IRA, who were considered more dangerous and bigger and more professional and better trained because they were all provisional IRA people originally. The, the book is is trying to explain all of that without it sounding like you know, the life of Brian, the, the People's Front for the Liberation of Judea and Judea and People's Front, you know, fighting amongst each other, you know. Yeah, I mean, there must be sketches about, you know, no, we're the real, 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 real. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous among some of these groups, you know, they especially in the prisons, you know, they, they're all in the Republican wings of, of the prisons, but some of them don't speak to each other in prison because, you know, I'm with this group and you're with that group and so on and so forth, you know. Well, and I think something happened in 1980. Five or to 1986 was that at a, at a point where the provisional IRA was disbanded or kind of switched over to continuity IRA? Uh, in 1986, there was the, the provisional IRA was still going, but they wanted to take their seats in the Southern Parliament. And there was a breakaway group then called Continuity IRA who would be real Catholic traditionalists 
in favor of the Irish language, in favor of the Catholic Church. You know, I always said that they were kind of rosary beads in one hand and a bomb in the other. You know, they were real, real traditionalists. So they broke away and formed Continuity IRA. So there was like that tension between them for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. Back to David Rupert, though. He seemed to have an, he seemed to have a, a kind of a irascible, kind of a cynical side. Oh, yeah. As well. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's in one hand, it seemed to, to help him. You know, he was an authentic character who was sort of anti-authority. But um, I was just wondering how how those quality. What, what we talked about some of it, but how how that quality could have helped or hurt him. I think overall it helped him because when I look at the the lifespan of other spies who've been in the IRA, the ones who have survived it generally ended up quite unhappy because they they had to move out of Ireland moved to Britain or, or elsewhere and felt that they were abandoned by MI5, the security service in Britain. Whereas David was so irascible and, and forceful that he got everything he wanted, you know, which was close to $10 million, uh, just by sheer force of personality. He felt abandoned in Ireland. He felt that the FBI had paid for him to take over the lease of a bar and then left him, whereas he, he was expecting a salary. So then he hired a lawyer. And from that moment on, very, very aggressively, he demanded everything in writing. And he would meet his agents outside of Britain and Ireland. So one time he met them in Paris and uh, they, they gave him an envelope of money. But when he went back to his hotel room, he discovered that he was shortchanged and he just blew up. I mean, just went nuts and... It ended up with him in Ireland refusing to do any work until the FBI met his wife at a gas station outside Chicago and they handed over the money he felt he was owed and then she had to count it and then get on a payphone with an FBI agent standing beside her and say, yeah, it's all here. She, she said it was like bizarre, like a hostage situation where like, you know, there had to be a money handover, you know, and uh, <laughs> yeah. she, uh, you know, she'd be far more mild mannered. But in the fullness of time, she can see that there was a method to the madness. You know, that David has walked away from this far better than any other spy who's ever worked in Ireland. Yeah. I mean, the overall story is fast. Is, is, it, it's cool the way it shapes together. I mean, like he wanted, it almost starts out with, he just wanted love. Yeah. <laughs> And um, this is what what he ended up with. And I guess his wife Maureen, she was. Um, I mean, he's still he's still married to her now. How much was she helping him? I mean, she was transcribing some of the things he was saying, but I just wanted to know how much she was she was doing as well. She was doing a lot. They kind of had a system going where they would be at a meeting with IRA people. She said it was a very sexist kind of world. It's a very man's world. So David mm. would be talking to them. Then they would get into the car and then David would start talking about the meeting immediately so that he would remember everything as he's driving. Then she would write it all down. Then they would go back to their accommodation. Then he would type out all her notes. They would Then they would burn the notes, make sure no one got a, got a hold of them. So when you look at the, the emails, you just see, you know, how much work she had to put into it because, you know, in each trip to Ireland, there's just so, so many emails to the FBI and MI5. On top of that, she's very, very... Uh, engaging person too and i think she 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 had to relax situations like for example there's a dissident or, or a real ira figure in Derry called michael donnelly and when i interviewed him i was struck by the fact that he still believed that she had nothing to do with any of this because she kind of played the american ingenue and she's irish american and they were keen to tell her all about ireland and her own roots and so on she also put her name on the on the bar, because her last name is Brennan, and she had a good Irish name. So instead of David Rupert, they used Maureen Brennan, which sounds way more Irish. So that was also another entry point for them into the IRA. 
Well, it's also like Maureen is um, Maureen, Maureen's very good under pressure. You know, she she uh, she worked her whole life in the Calumet trucking stop in Chicago, where you have hundreds and hundreds. Of, it's 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 basically its own town. You know, you you had a place where people could sleep. You had a restaurant. You had the whole lot. She was basically running the whole show. So she was used to working under pressure, and she was used to working with men all the time. And I think that helped an offer an awful lot with this operation. So Michael Donnelly, he was was he the one with his wife that's had some doubts about the receipts or something? That's right. Yeah, he said that he was struck by every time David would order something if they were in a restaurant or in a bar, he would keep the receipts. And uh, Michael Donnelly's wife was the most senior female uh, figure in in Derry in Northern Ireland in the IRA. She she was in the IRA from the beginning, and so was he. And they're both pretty shrewd. And he said that he trusted his wife a lot and that she started to have doubts about David because he was presenting himself as this millionaire trucker. And she was like, well, why would a millionaire trucker be keeping receipts for small items? And her husband said, Michael Donnelly said, well, you know, maybe that's why he's a millionaire because he just looks after all, all, all these dollars. <laughs> and, uh, and she said, or maybe yeah. he's giving those receipts to somebody. And he kind of dismissed it. Like it was just after dinner with, with David and his wife. But then he said, you know, it, it really began to fester in his mind because he, he knew his wife had been, had kept them out of prison for a long time by her shrewdness. And uh, he really, really started to question things. And there is evidence that he, he did raise it with people in America about David, that he had doubts about him. Did he raise it with any of the other IRA in Ireland? Yeah, he did. I think David's, biggest advantage there was that Michael Donnelly was suspicious of a lot of people. So uh, there was safety yeah. in numbers with Michael. Uh, you know, every week there seemed to be, what about this guy? What about that guy? And, uh, and the IRA in general is very suspicious. It's a very suspicious organization. It's constantly walk, watching for infiltrators because the British are very, very good at infiltration. They've had hundreds of years of experience of it. You know, they, they, they ruled everywhere from Afghanistan to Canada by just having a very good security system and very good spy system. And the IRA were always very conscious of that, how good they were. So they were always looking out for spies. And in some ways that benefited David because when, when David is like number 70 in the list of, you know, this guy could be or that guy could be, then people aren't taking it as seriously. And your character of Norman, which obviously is not his real name, but it's it's the name I would choose if I was MI5. (laughs) (laughs) The most like unexciting name, just Norman. Just call me Norman. Yeah. I mean, he took him to the, uh, what was the statue of Alfred or something? Uh, Yeah, Alfred the Great, who was the first British spy um, in Viking times. The Vikings had set up camp. And the story is that Alfred the Great infiltrated the camp as a, a musician, a, a traveling minstrel, and, and played for them for a few days. Then saw the you know the exact numbers, what kind of weapons they had, and all that. Then left the camp, and then prepared his men and slaughtered all the Vikings. So I, I thought it was fascinating that, that the way Norman operated. This is a guy who was very active during the Cold War uh, against the Soviet Union. You know, very calm, collected kind of figure. So the first time they met, he took him down to the south of England, out to a town called Southampton. And then as they were driving back to London, he said, you know, do you want to see a bit of tourism? And he took him to Winchester Cathedral and showed him around the cathedral. And then he said, can I show you something else? And David said, sure. So then he, he walks him to this statue in Winchester of Alfred the Great and said, did you know that this was Britain's first spy? And then told him the story about the Vikings and the infiltration. And I, I, I just thought that was so fascinating the way MI5 operates. You know, it's all very like 
oh, would you like to see this? Would you like to see that? But the message is clear. You know, we have a long tradition of spying. This is what we do. This is how good we are. And here's our statues to prove it. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like they were trying to enhance his sense of purpose. I mean, he's, I know mm. the FBI is giving you money, but we're going to give you like a historical, maybe even spiritual reason for, 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 for exactly. doing what you're doing. That's, a, that's an excellent way of putting it. I wish I put that in the book. That's a great way of putting it. It, it, it was to show a kind of a higher mission. There's the Ed Buckley, the, the, the donut and coffee kind of tough guy, FBI guy comes into your office, you know, breaking your balls, to use the expression. And then you've yeah. got the, the, the Normans who are just like very calm, you know, they take you to a lovely restaurant, you know, they explain the history of Alfred the Great and the long tradition we have of, you know, preserving democracy and so on and so forth. And, and David was really taken by this guy. He really, really liked him. I think a less professional guy would have said, big trucker from upstate New York would, you know, would, would want to go to a burger bar. But he respected David. And David's, uh, David's actually a very, very bright guy. He left school at 15, uh, had some reading problems just because of an eye problem. And his entire time of trucking across America, you know, from New York over to California and back, was listening to audiobooks. He, he listened to all kinds of self-help books. He listened to, you know, all kinds of books that won Pulitzer Prize or Booker Prize. Uh, Thomas Keneally's Schindler's Ark that became Schindler's List. He listened to that in its, in its entirety. Yeah, a lot of great works. So he loved people who respected him, who, who saw that he was an intelligent guy who was well-read. And I think Norman picked up on that immediately. Whereas people like Ed Buckley pissed him off because they just saw him as a trucker. Mm-hmm. And that... that that plays in again um, at the end of the book where he's done with the Ireland business and he's testified and they know he's very, very good. So the FBI want him to work in Los Angeles where there was a tremendous amount of drugs were coming in through Los Angeles Harbor. And it's away from the Irish American scene. So he's not at risk, but he walks in there and at FBI headquarters in LA and he can hear two FBI agents talking. And one of them says, yeah, we've got a trucking snitch coming in. And David just goes ballistic right there in front of everybody in the office and just explodes. And he's like, you know, F you, you can F your job and I'm done. That was his last day as a spy because he felt disrespected. I I, I found it fascinating about MI5 that they they know your personality. They know your weaknesses and your vulnerabilities and your insecurities. They know how to play you up and make you feel um, special. Yeah. I mean, if Norman was a Cold War person, what I've heard people talk about is, ICE was the acronym, which is ideology, cash, or, or ego. He was probably trying right. to, probably to cover yeah. all three points of the triangle there. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, I've heard that acronym too, and it's very accurate for, for the times as well, that everybody has a weakness. Yeah, I wanted to jump a little bit into British counterinsurgency. I, I know, you've, you know you're kind of an authority on this, this subject, but I mean, there's, all kind, there's a bunch of other acronyms. Ultimately, it ends up with force research unit. The fourth, the fourth research unit would be in, yeah, there's a lot of acronyms, but the, the fourth research unit is, is, was the one to fear. And they were basically a, a group that set up people for assassination in Northern Ireland, a, a force working within the, the British army, but they had links to loyalist or pro-British terrorist groups. Um, but their name, you know, their name wasn't in currency for a long time, but it, as there's been more investigations recently, the, the FRU, as they were known in the Force Research Unit, be, have become very much central to the black arts of British spying. But they're very, very separate to what David was doing. In fact, I think the people in MI5 would have looked down on 
the force research unit because they were the, they were the dirty wing of of the army. You know, they, they had none of the subtlety that that MI5 would have. Um, they were in there to to kill, and they ran people within the the IRA who ended up getting killed themselves. Um, so I think the two groups operated in a very different way. A Stevenson inquiry. Yeah, Stevenson was a police officer who came over from Britain, very, very skillful guy uh, to investigate what was known as shoot to kill, which is that, you know, the army had certain people that were to be eliminated. And uh, there's certainly, I think, very strong evidence of police officers having uh, lawyers killed, for example. Like there were certain lawyers who were very, very skillful at their jobs, who always seemed to get their IRA clients off using legal technicalities or European law. And two of those very prominent lawyers were killed. And the BBC recorded the killer of one of those lawyers sitting in a car talking about how a police officer had said that that lawyer has to be killed. He has to, the expression was he has to go uh, because it was considered that uh, too many IRA people were getting off in the courts. So you know, when you have police officers and when you have army people involved in killing lawyers, you're on, you're on a different level altogether. Because I think certain people, you know, people would have a certain sympathy with killing off IRA people because they're out to kill you. When you're killing the lawyers who are representing the IRA, then I think it takes on a, a totally a different tone, very sinister tone. But, that, you know, that, that was very much FRU, Force Research Unit kind of stuff. A lot of dark arts going on there. I mean, I think it's inevitable when you're in a conflict in which nearly 4,000 people are killed, you know, when, when the IRA are, are bombing at will, you know, on the Conservative Party conference, they almost killed Margaret Thatcher. They killed shoppers outside Harrods. They killed, you know, many, many civilians. Thousands of people are being killed. I think, I think it's inevitable that some sort of dark force is going to emerge from the state, start bumping them off. But the question is always then, where do you draw the line? Like, wh- who becomes a target and who doesn't? And I think that became very gray in Northern Ireland, um, who was legitimately could be killed and who couldn't. It was also dangerous for journalists as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was a journalist killed by pro-British loyalists as well. I think it's only emerging now, you know, who, all these inquiries into like who was killed and why they were killed. You know, there's a lot of material there for a lot more books, that's for sure. You know, as, as it's now emerged, it gets so layered because there was a lot of infiltration of the IRA and they were getting bumped off. So then they set up their own internal investigation squad within the IRA to try and find the informers who were working for the British. That the head of that internal IRA investigation unit, which was by slang known as the nutting unit, was himself working for the British. So in other words, he was torturing and killing people to try and find who this big informer was. Steak knife. In fact, he, He's right with steak, steak knife. knife. Yeah, yeah Freddy Scapatici, who was in fact the big informer that they were allowing him to torture and kill to find he was in fact a big informant. So, you know, there's like a lot of layers to what was going on. Um, Scapatici is now, uh, we're not allowed to say where he is. He was responsible for killing over 50 people. Uh, but all the time he was a British agent. Pretty extraordinary story in itself. Yeah. There was a book I read about that. I really, I mean, Steak Knife is the title. <laughs> right. Um, it's Martin, In- Martin Ingram. Yeah good book yeah but it, it, it seemed like there's uh an element of is this true or is this not true while, while you're reading it i was just wondering if that if that has kind of shrouded some of this stuff because there had you said there hasn't been a lot of 
you know, maybe diligent investig- and comprehensive investigation mm. of everything that happened. Do, do stories, is, is there a sense of, like, do you believe it or not? Like, do you believe people's claims? Uh, it depends. Like, there, there's a whole kind of um, industry now of people seeking compensation from the British state for what happened. Mm-hmm. And some of that is outrageous. I mean, there was a whole IRA unit who had a guy tied to a chair who were about to execute him. It emerged that British Capitici's steak knife was the person who had told the police and the army that the guy was there. So they all went rushing in. And these guys were jailed, but it wasn't disclosed that Critis Capitici was the agent in their trial. So they all got compensation in the end. And, you know, they got big payouts. So I broke that story in, in the British papers and it was on the front page. Like there is a vested interest in some people in, you know, getting compensation for what happened. I guess why I was drawn to David's story is that there's there's 2,300 emails between between MI5 and the FBI and David Rupert. And I think that gave it a very credible backbone you know, on top of his testimony and the FBI and, and MI5 to keep it on the straight and narrow because some parts of the Northern Ireland story are very murky indeed and all kinds of agendas are at play, you know. But I, I felt with emails, you, you can pinpoint right down to a minute what person is saying. So how was the experience of writing this book and doing the investigation? I mean, you're, you're a journalist as well. You've, you've done it. But how was how this different from um, other stories that you've investigated? And um, did, at, at any point have you sort of felt maybe in danger? Yeah, I did. But that was kind of earlier on before the book was even taking shape. I was investigating the Oma bombing, which the real IRA uh, committed, which killed 29 people. There were moments of that that were absolutely the most terrifying of my life because I realized that they knew who I was, but they didn't know what I looked like. And then I was sitting in a bar in the border with one of the chief suspects in the Oma bombing. And he was telling me about the spy, Sean O'Driscoll, but he didn't know that I was Sean O'Driscoll. And this guy, this guy himself had killed more than 50 people. And everything just went blurry, you know, my heart rate just went way up. And I just thought he's just messing with me now. It's like a, a cat playing with a, with, a, with a mouse before he kills it. There was a lot of dissident IRA people in the bar at the time. And they were between me and the door. And I just thought, well, I just make a run for it now. And I just stayed talking. And eventually I shook hands with him and thanked him for his time and just went out of there and almost collapsed. But, you know, that was just as the book was forming. Um, but th- those moments were terrifying. Or Seamus McKenna, who's now dead, the guy who drove the, the car bomb into Oma that killed the 29 people. Uh, I got to know him very well. And I used to uh, hang out with him in the bars in, in Dundalk along the border. When I was getting to know him, I, I was in his next door neighbor's house. I used to sit there having tea with his neighbor, waiting for him to come back for hours. And then uh, an IRA guy came over to the house and closed the door in the living room started asking me all these questions about who I was. And I said, oh, I used to work with, with Seamus up in Monaghan. And he said, you know, I have some doubts about who you are. And it, it was so terrifying. And I just talked my way out of it and wished them both a happy Christmas, mm-hmm. just before Christmas. And then uh, I walked out of there and I was shaking. And then there was a police car across the road and uh, as I was walking out of that housing estate. And I, I just wanted to run across and, and tell the police and, and get in. And just thank God I didn't because I would have just blown everything and i wanted to be able to talk to seamus mckenna without the real ira people knowing about it because they would have shut down the conversations very quickly mm-hmm. those moments were absolutely terrifying and there was some scary there was the, the, during the book itself if you look in the thank you notes you'll see that i thanked somebody in the real ira that i used to chase down the street 
and uh, eventually I told him I'd leave him alone if he would talk to me about David Rupert. And I get my number, and I just thought that nothing's going to come of this. This is a very, very senior a real IRA person. And then he said, I'll, I'll meet with you. I, I, you know, part of it was just so I'd leave him alone. Mm-hmm. He said he'd meet me in a hotel in, in the center of Dublin. And uh, so I went there, and I was terrified. And I actually wrote out a will before I went. You know, I just I left my, my house to my girlfriend and stuff. And, and uh, I went to meet him. And my girlfriend was so concerned that she went into the hotel just to make sure that I was in the lobby. And... Uh, walked by to confirm I was still alive. But, you know, I, I stayed talking to him for three and a half hours and he, he was extremely valuable in, in terms of setting the scene. So, th- you know, those moments were scary, for sure. Uh, I also learned a lot about writing a book I and mean, how you write a book. I, I quit my job to, to go and write the book. And so it's like throwing yourself out of a out of a plane. You know, you're just better hope to God the parachute works, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's entirely in your best interest to make sure the parachute works. So that's basically how I discovered you write a book because you have no choice. You know, you just got to make it work. And I, I, I hate working in an apartment. I hate working in silence. So I would get on the tram in Dublin and I would just go up and down the tram line. And then I would like switch trains and just go back down again and then get on the next train and go back up again and back down again and back up again and back down again. So you know that Google app that tells you, you know, where you've been all day. So that would, yeah, would just show like this line on the tram line of me just going up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. And then at the end of the day, I would realize I would have so many other questions, and then I would call David and ask him more questions or hunt for paper as well. That was a big one. Like I, I didn't have any of these emails. Like I, I knew that the book just wasn't going to work without the emails. So there was mm-hmm. like two thousand three hundred emails missing. The breakthrough there was that. In Madrid, is that how you say it? Is that, am I saying that right? Madrid, right. Madrid. I can never get it right. I can never Madrid. get it exactly right. Yeah. Like like people upstate New York say it. I can never quite say it. So it turned out that um, in the local library, there was a corner there that was dedicated to David Rupert, like local guy done well kind of thing, with newspaper articles about him from all over the world. And David had stored all his papers with them. They weren't on public display, but they were in the back of the library. And then they were doing a renovation, so they gave all his papers, including the emails, to his niece. And they were in his her house, in her garage, in a box, in a cardboard box. It just took forever for David to fly from his now undisclosed location to back to Madrid to to go look for them because he he was convinced he was convinced that there was no emails with there. He said, "I just I left all my papers with them, but there wasn't the emails weren't there." So I said, "Will you please just go back and check, please, 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 please?" please. Mm-hmm. And that went on for ages, and eventually he found the cardboard boxes, and there were all the emails. So that that was just oh, such a man. lucky break. Yeah, I mean, I, like there, there wasn't a chance in a million that I was going to get those from from MI5. Oh God, yeah, what a coup! So. I think that those MI5 emails were sitting in a library in storage in Madrid. I know. There was like a little old lady, you know, in the library, um, controlling the whole thing. Um, yeah. Looking so for Joby, you talking about Joby? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, like nobody, nobody there. Like I'm walking around there, and no, nobody knew who David Rupert was. And then I would say Joby, and they go, "Oh, Joby, yeah." Who's that? I, uh, I wonder if my dad knows him. He lives in Potsdam. Did he know? Did you run across the Walsh family at all? They are a trucking family in Messina. I'm sure. I, I'm sure David would know them. I'd ask. Uh, because mm-hmm. initially he he wanted to meet me in Potsdam. Um, there's a hotel there. Uh, he's very very familiar with all that area. You know? 
a lot of trucking going through there. So he, he, yeah, he knew that area. I'm sure you know people in common. Yeah. I mean, that reservation is, I mean, the last time I was on the reservation, I just saw, yeah, like four different cars from four different agencies pulling over somebody else. I mean, there's still, there's still smuggling going on. Oh, it's huge smuggling. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, the Irish border, there's huge smuggling going on as well. Like, so David knew the, the lingo and the world that the real IRA were operating in just by the, just by living on the American Canadian border, give him a great insight into, into their world. I mean, most paramilitary stroke terrorist activity in Ireland is funded by, by smuggling. The real IRA, you know, were, had a massive and still do massive part in, in cigarette smuggling. So David was familiar with that world, obviously through Native American reservations. You know, he would have seen a lot of that, but didn't want to get involved because he didn't want any of his trucks to be confiscated. Oh, one other thing I wanted to ask him, and you mentioned Gaddafi, 300 tons of weapons and 3 million British pounds that Gaddafi had given to the IRA. Huge amount of support. I mean, he kept them going for decades. Um, obviously, he he blamed Britain for the bombing of Tripoli by the Americans. And he saw himself as the great anti-colonial leader of the world. And when I was a kid, I remember him on Irish TV, on a current affairs program, satellite from Libya, urging the young people of Ireland to join the IRA. And he was supplying them with a yeah, huge amount of weapons, very sophisticated weapons too. And all of their Semtex, every, every bit of plastic explosive the IRA had came directly from, from Gaddafi. He, basically, they would, they would get these big boats and bring them into ports in Libya. And then there was a chain of, of soldiers, Libyan soldiers, that would just pass down uh, weapons on, onto, onto the ships. So the IRA people at the time, the, the skipper of one of the ships who was arrested, cooperated with the police. And I mean, it was like a Willy Wonka chocolate factory of weapons in there. You know, there was just these huge warehouses of, of military weapons. And the IRA would just go in and say, we love that, 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 that. And then the army would just line up and just, you know, pass it down onto their ships and, and off they'd sail to Ireland. Um, so where were the ships yeah, going to? Where were the, where were the ships? They would come from Ireland and then they would um, go into military ports in Libya and load up and then come back down to Ireland. And, and then they had certain ports in Ireland where they knew no one would, would, would watch and they would unload them in, in the very south of Ireland. And then uh, Mickey McEvitt would have all these bunkers set up and they would distribute them very quickly to farms uh, all around the south of Ireland. That's why British intelligence were very, very concerned when Mickey McEvitt broke away to set up his own organization to be known as the Real IRA during the peace talks because he was basically the only person in Ireland who knew where all the IRA bunkers were. They worked in a cell structure, so everything was on a need-to-know basis. So none of the top people in the IRA knew exactly where all the weapons were, but Mickey McEvitt knew where everything was. And here he is as chief of staff of his own terrorist group setting it up. So that, you know, that was a huge concern to the security forces. So are there still, did they, did he give the location ultimately of all those bunkers or are there some mysteries remaining? There's some mysteries remaining. Uh, McEvitt didn't, didn't like big weapon, big clunky assault rifles like the AK-47, the Kalashnikov. He hated those weapons. He wanted um, smaller handguns and he wanted sniper rifles like the, the American Barrett rifle, which were a huge, huge success to the IRA. So a lot of what they got from Libya, he didn't actually want. He wanted the plastic explosive, plastic explosives, but a lot of those AK-47s, those kind of weapons of which the IRA had hundreds, he wasn't particularly interested. So he 
rather than, than start a war with his old comrades in the provisional IRA, he, he was prepared to let a lot of weapons go and to to bring in the weapons that he wanted. Which So, so he would turn to David Rupert because he really wanted Barrett long-range sniper rifles to be brought in from America because they had basically brought the British Army to a halt in places like South Dermot in Northern Ireland. They killed a lot of soldiers with those. You mentioned some of the tactics where they would take a small hatchback car and put a metal plate in the back of it. So it was like just a, a tiny aperture at the back of this plate. You know, the, the policy in South Dermot was, was one shot, one kill. So they were only allowed to take one shot. So they had to make it, they had to make it last with, with a Barrett rifle, which can, can shoot up to a mile away. So they would just take one shot and then the, the, the vehicle would immediately take off. So it was extremely hard to, to get them. And even if they pursued them, then they would have scouts along the way, you know, to engage them in a, in a, a gunfight so that the, the snipers would get away. That went on for a very, very long time. And as luck would have it, when they eventually got the sniper team, they caught them red-handed. It was just before the Good Friday Agreement. So some of them were sentenced to, one of, the, one of them was sentenced to over 500 years in prison. And he left prison laughing because under the agreement, anybody who was convicted only had to serve two years in prison. So he was out in two years or less than two years, having, oh, having wow. been sentenced to prison for 500 years. You know, the, the sniper team are now, they're, they're, they're now back out. And I've, I've actually seen them just walking around in Cross McGlenn in, in South Armagh. You know, they're totally free now. They hardly served any time in prison. So what was happening in April? I'm, did you know Lyra, Lyra McKee? I knew of her. Journalist? I knew of mm-hmm. her. I mean, they, um, we had somebody who was leaving our newspaper who was just basically going through the freelancer list to pass it on to me. And he, you know, he took Lyra's name off it because she was killed by uh, by the IRA um, who were shooting at the, the at the police, and they missed, and, and they killed a journalist who was standing behind the police. And uh, just a sad moment in the paper to just take her name off the list, just like that. And very, very good journalist. Shocking what happened to her. But it, you know, it, it illustrates that the uh, the dissident IRA, as we call them, the ones who are against peace, are still out there. Yeah, I watched part of a like a surveillance video of uh, they were shooting with small handguns. It didn't look they looked like they were just yeah, it didn't look it didn't it didn't look like they were as organized as uh, previous IRA. No. I mean most of them are like all talk and no action, you know. They they love the the uniforms and the, the action and all of that. And then, you know, when they actually go off and do something like this, I mean it just shows the mentality. I mean there there's a line of police down there, they want to kill a police officer. But, you know, there's journalists and civilians standing behind the police and they're just taking pot shots at the police mm-hmm. down the street and, and kill a journalist. Um, how how has this, this other group called Seorda or something? Oh, Sarah, yeah. They're the uh, political wing of the new IRA. They have a certain support in Derry, no question about it. There's a councillor there called Gary Donnelly who is uh, very closely aligned to the real IRA mm-hmm. on Derry City Council. The anti-agreement... IRA certainly have a following in Derry among certain certain areas. Uh, no question about that. But uh, you know, but overall, they, like they don't have enough support to really mount a, a really aggressive campaign against the British. Has there been like social media Russians trying to exploit divisions, kind of y- using that? Uh, you mean the Russian intelligence and using and Russian misinformation? I mean, they do. Oh yeah. Everywhere. Oh yeah. There's you know there there's stuff there that was going on in the background that raised big eyebrows at me, but I, I didn't I didn't print it, but 
I can tell you for certain, and you're the first one to hear this, that there was pro-Putin figures who had turned up at, like Continuity IRA have their, their annual Ardesh or their annual meeting. Right. And I'm like walking around the room and I meet this, you know, stunningly beautiful young Russian woman. And I'm like wondering what she's doing. And, you know, she was, uh, she's in a pro-Putin party and group in, in, in Russia. And she was over there at their meeting. And, you know, there, I mean, I, I recognized continuity IRA ex-prisoners in the room all over the place. And then uh, she was downstairs and then, some of the, the leading figures in the party said, you know, we want to talk to you upstairs. So they went up to have their private conversation. But that just struck me as just one aspect of this. This was recently? Yeah, it was recently. This is uh, well, two years ago. That, you know, that, that just struck me because there was a conference in Moscow and then continuity IRA, pro-continuity IRA people were invited over there, including one of the people who, who was there talking to her. Uh, so he was over in in Moscow, you know, and it was a very like anti-American thing, you know, this conference. And it was all sorts of it was Puerto Rican separatist groups. Basically, if you you if you had some sort of beef with America, you were invited over to Moscow to this conference. You know, so, so it struck me that the continuity area people went over to Moscow to this conference, and then Moscow people came over to to their meeting in Ireland, and there seemed to be some sort of. Uh, Little arrangement going on there. Some kind of synergy going going on. Yeah, yeah, and also I've noticed like this weird uh, this weird relationship between the hard left in Ireland and Putin's people. Like I, I, I had a, I was over on I was over in Greece on an assignment last year, and then I was getting a taxi back from the airport, and my taxi driver couldn't have been more pro-Putin and more like hard socialist left. And I was like, how do you align those two things? You know, like how yeah. Putin Putin is no socialist, that's for sure. Yeah. And uh, it stuns me, this relationship between the real hard left and Putin. And the fact that he's able to manipulate them into saying whatever the hell he wants, to being pro-Assad, being pro-Syrian government, being pro-Russia, anything that's militantly anti-American, the hard left will cling on to in Europe. I don't know ideologically how on earth they can align that. Well, anyway, that uh, thanks for being on the live drop. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you very much. And, you know, thank you for doing so much research. Uh, it's, 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 it's really nice to be uh, talking to somebody who's actually read it. You actually read it, and I really appreciate that. And I just can't oh, thank I'm, you enough for doing that. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It's a fantastic book. Thank you. Real pleasure. Thank you very much. That was my chat with Sean O'Driscoll, journalist, author of the book, The Accidental Spy. The book is available wherever you get your books. I'll have links to it on the show notes at thelivedrop.com. After recording this interview, I got an email from someone who's going to be our next guest. The next episode, we'll talk with David Rupert himself and about his experiences in infiltrating the IRA. End of transmission. Transmission.